Well, good morning again. Uh, need to thank Terry and Alan for filling in for me the last few weeks. I actually had Alan planned, uh, as he said last week, for a few months um, as, uh, as, as just a break for me, kind of in between series, and then was sick, and Terry came and filled in. Um, and I decided after Kevin's communion talk um, that, that first, um, I'm right, because I have the Bible on my side. <laughs> The heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? Uh, just a little Bible there. Um, but uh, uh, he also mentioned that he has, what, just a sinus uh, thing or something? And so that's part of what I've been dealing with. So I'm just going to blame that on you, buddy. Um, I, I, am, I am feeling better, um, but you'll probably hear me kind of sniffle a little bit. And I, I, I brought a, a paper towel here just in case I need it. Um, so you're, you're going to have to kind of put your thinking caps on a little bit today and, and maybe crank up your memory a little bit if you were with us uh, uh, before um, Alan and Terry kind of came in the last couple weeks and we were talking in this series, You Don't Complete Me. We've been talking about relationships and marriage and things like that. And so today we're gonna wrap up the series. And I, I really had intended in my uh, message prepping plans, uh, we were gonna start a new message series today called Broken. We're pushing that back a week because I really wanted to share uh, this last message with you in the You Don't Complete Me series. And we're gonna talk about <clears throat> why having a spouse can be such a struggle in our lives and, and, and really why every relationship, um, but especially those relationship with the other gender, but why every relationship we have really seems to be doomed to challenges and frustrations in our lives. Um, I, I love my wife. She is my best friend. I want to spend time with her. I don't like it when we're apart. Uh, I like to be with her. I like to be at home. I like to, I like to be around her. I, in, I enjoy her um, 99% of the time. <laughs> she enjoys me. 51% of the time, <laughs> something like that. This is not quite uh, accurate. But even the best relationships in our lives struggle. We have struggles, we have challenges, and there are things to overcome. And so we're gonna try and look at why we have those struggles, why we have those challenges in our lives. And in order to get to that, we've gotta go all the way back to the beginning. In the creation story of Genesis chapter two, that's pretty much the beginning, right? We go all the way back there, and in chapter two, God is recreating creation in front of Adam. And it's, it's kind of this weird thing. You read Genesis chapter one, and we go through the creation days, the six days, and then the seventh day, God rests, and he says everything is is very good. He's like the earth and people and the animals, everything is functioning exactly the way that I intended it to function. And then you move to chapter two, and there's this weird thing about this garden, and you have Adam, and then he gets the rule, and, and, and God like creates these bushes and trees and stuff. You're like, wait a minute, I thought he did that in the last chapter. And then, um, and then he creates animals. Again, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. So what's happening in Genesis chapter two, we, we looked at the beginning of the series 
Genesis chapter one is a poem. It's not meant to be a scientific manual about how God created the world. It was meant and created to be a poem about creation. And and really it's a poem about, the whole Bible is really a story about how we got here. And, and I don't mean here on planet Earth. I mean here in the place that we're at with the struggles that we have, sin and good and evil and all of those things. It's about how we got here to this place where God seems far away from us and, and we feel shame and guilt and we struggle with life and we're not living the way we know God created us to live. How did we get here in this place? And so we go back to the beginning, we, we look in chapter two, the, the author is kind of giving us a, a, a magnifying glass look at the sixth day of creation. God creates Adam and Eve, and there's this group of things that happen. And so just think of chapter two as like a microscope on day number six of, of creation. That helps you kind of process it a little bit. So what happens is God creates Adam and then he places Adam in this garden. It's this special place where heaven and humanity function in this incredible unity. Um, and, and God is present there. We, we know that he comes and he walks with, he talks with Adam and Eve. There's this relationship that happens. And, and so uh, kind of think about a Venn diagram. Those are really popular right now. And so you have heaven and you have earth uh, or humanity. And, and, and this garden is the place that those two things intersect. So it's like a special it's a special place. No other place has existed like that before. So Adam and Eve, they have this, this close relationship with God in this beautiful place called the, called the garden. And since Adam was the last thing that God created, humanity was the last thing that God created, God is recreating creation in front of Adam so that Adam has no doubt this is God. Because what would happen if we don't have chapter two of Genesis? God creates Adam and then God comes and says, hey, hey buddy, I created everything. And Adam is a human, right? And he goes, oh yeah, prove it. So chapter two is God proving to Adam that he did in fact create all this stuff and that the reason Adam is here is because God made him and breathed into him and brought him to life. And so this is chapter two. It's, it's here in chapter two, in Genesis two, where in the garden where God gives Adam the one rule that they are supposed to, to follow, right? And it's about this tree. And he says, hey, uh, don't eat. You can eat from any tree in the garden. They all look good. They're all good for food. But this one tree, we're gonna call it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not supposed to eat from that one tree. He had one rule and he couldn't follow it. Right, so we go, then we had 10 rules, and then the Jewish people added in about 600 more rules, and, and we know from society today, rules don't work. You can add all the rules you want to, and they don't fix us, because we just don't follow them. In fact, I would argue that many people uh, hear a rule, and then once they hear the rule, they have an idea that they should break the rule. They would not have broken the rule had they not known it was a rule. But now somebody comes and says, you must be home by 10. And we go, mm, maybe not. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And so we will always 
pushing these things. So God creates Adam. He puts him in the garden. He gives him this, um, this one rule. And the very next thing the text says is, God realizes, he recognizes it is not good for Adam to be alone. And so God says, I'm going to make a, a helper. And, and it, the word helper doesn't mean helper. And we'll get into that maybe some other time. But anyway, I'm, I need to make this other person for Adam. Like Adam doesn't have anybody else like him. I need to make somebody else like him. But what happens next? We expect the story in the very next verse. We expect God to say, okay, Adam needs a helper. I'm going to make a helper for him. And then in the next verse, God makes this helper. He makes this other person, this counterpart to Adam. But we know the story, and that's not what happens at all. In fact, it goes into this really odd thing where the story stops. And so God says, it is not good for Adam to be alone. This is not tenable. We, he can't maintain this uh, and this uh, uh, being alone in my creation. But instead of creating this other person, God puts it off. And instead, in the story right here, God forms all the trees and the plants in the garden, and Adam watches him. And then God takes the time to create all of these um, animals, um, and bring them about. And then, and then he tells Adam that, Adam, you're supposed to give all these animals names. And, and can we just recognize, for like we've heard this story hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And, and we typically kind of, we get to this point, we read the Bible and we've heard it so often that we just kind of read it and move on. We don't take the time to really process or think about what's going on. And so can we just ad admit, I, I know it sounds kind of weird, and, and if you grew up in church, you were told not to do this, but I'm just gonna say, this doesn't make a lot of sense. This seems completely odd. It's completely strange. It's just like, what, God, what are you doing? Why do you say you need a helper? Uh, I need to make you a helper. But before I do that, here's all the plants and the, and the animals, and now you're going to name all, all the animals. It's just an odd story. It's strange. So this is what God does. And Adam sees all the animals of the world. And then in the second half of verse 20, we get all this kind of nonsense done. And then the text says, um, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam saw every creature that God had, had made, bird, animal, uh, beast, livestock, everything that he had made. And amazingly enough, Adam was not attracted to a single one of them. He did not look at any of these animals that God had created and go, ooh, <laughs> uh, I could see waking up to you every morning. Like, this is not, it was like, nothing happened. Like, Adam's like, okay, I've seen everything that you created and none of them are like me. I'm alone in creation. There's, there's nobody else. Like I see all these animals and they all have counterparts and they're all doing what they're supposed to do, but there's nobody here that fits me. So Adam, uh, God brings Adam along to this place where he recognizes that he's alone. Now God knew it before, right? 
But I think he had to bring Adam to that place. Adam had to see this for himself. So I want you to hold that in your mind and just stop there because we're going to kind of switch gears a little bit in the story. What is it that separates humanity from the animal world? What is it that separates humanity, man and woman, from the rest of God's creation, all of the animals? Now, some of you, I would just tell you, I got to be really careful about this because some of you love your animals. I um, don't. Um, and, and it's not that I don't like having animals. Like I grew up with cats and dogs and I enjoyed having them around and, and, and the, all my kids have dogs and some of them are okay. Uh, but I just, I just, I'm just not an animal. I'm not an animal person. When Sarah McLaughlin comes on the TV, I change the channel. I, I just, I'm, I just don't, I'm, I'm much more interested in people than, than in, um, in, in pets. Now, that's just me. That's um, where I'm at. So I just have to go, what is it? Because sometimes if you, like, if you're one of those people who loves your pets, you love your pets. And your pets are part of your family, and they're like children, and you, you care for them, and you, and you love them, and, that, and that's great for you. Um, I, I, this is just not me, okay? So uh, I know that some of you are going to look at this and you're going to go, well, nothing, nothing separates uh, humanity from the animal world. We are exactly the same. Uh, and to that, I say therapy. Um, but anyway, what is it that separates humanity from the beasts of the, of, of the field, from our pets? There's a difference between us. Adam looks at all these things. He looks at all these beasts of the field. He just has named them, and yet he does not find, he cannot find a helper. There's only one other place in the Bible where an animal speaks, and there's a story of Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. And it's a very interesting story. In part, it's interesting because when Balaam's donkey begins to talk, Balaam is freaked out. Like, this is not supposed to happen. This is not normal. I don't understand what's going on. God must be involved here because this is a strange thing that's happening. It is a completely different story from what's happening in Genesis chapter 3, where the snake speaks and Eve just goes, oh, hey, how you doing, snake? It's like a strange, really strange uh, thing. Here we have this snake and Eve, then they, they like strike up this conversation. And the snake, if you paid attention, is relating to Eve. He listened to her response, her challenge about how God had said, don't eat it, don't even, don't even touch it. And then he responded to that. This is a very similar to conversations that you and I have had in, in our lives, uh, where at some point somebody says, did your dad really say be home by 10? I think if you're just a little late, five, 10, 15 minutes, it'll probably be okay. That's the conversation that the snake is having um, with Eve. Uh, but then there's more. Like this talking snake uses reason and logic. He says, oh, you won't die. God just knows that if you eat from this fruit, then your eyes will be open like his eyes. And so the snake is listening to Eve and he's addressing her concern in a way that causes her to change her mind. If the snake was around today, he'd be part of the debate team in high school. 
Like he's listening to her and he's crafting this thing and he's sharing this thing. He's actually swaying Eve. So there's logic and reason involved with the snake. And then later in the story, and we're not going to look at it, but this is what happens. God curses the snake at, at the end of chapter three. And he says, on your belly, you will go and dust you will eat, which means the snake was not crawling on its belly before. The snake walked upright like a human. So this is weird. There is a beast, and, and we're told that it's a beast of the field. It's clear from the story. The snake is not a man. The snake is not human. He is a beast, and yet he looks and sounds and thinks a lot like a human. So what is it that separates the snake or any of the beasts of the field from humanity? Well, we get the answer um, in the text. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you shall surely eat, or you may surely eat, of any tree in the garden. Every tree is open for you. Uh, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And this is what Adam, or God tells Adam before Eve is created. So the question then is, who tells Eve the rule? God gives the rule to Adam. Who gives the rule to Eve? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly, but presumably and probably it's Adam who tells Eve the rule. Once she's there, God, uh, Adam was the one who saw God create all the vegetation and the trees. He's the one who saw God create all of the animals from the dust of the ground in the garden. He's the one who named all the animals. So it makes sense that Adam would be the one to tell Eve, hey, I was here. I saw God do all this stuff. Here's the rule. Don't eat from that tree. It's probably why Adam is tied into the curse at the end of chapter 3. So how does Eve interpret God's command through Adam? Or, or maybe the Jewish rabbis would say it this way. How did Adam explain God's one rule, his one command to Eve? What does she say to the snake? Well, if you go to chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, this is how Eve responds. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, again, thinking caps, did God say not to touch the fruit or the tree? No, <laughs> he didn't. He just said, don't eat it. Why? Well, some think that eating the tree because of its name, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, this makes sense, right? So some believe that if you eat the tree, then you have the ability then to know the difference between good and evil, right? That would make sense in the, in the text. Once you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you then have that knowledge, you possess that knowledge, and then you know right from wrong. And so you can function in the world knowing both sides of that uh, thing. But, but I, would, I would say this, Eve clearly knows she shouldn't eat from the tree. She says, uh, God said, there's a rule, don't eat from the tree. And if you eat from the tree, you're, you're going to die. Like there's punishment associated with this. Eve understands that there's a right thing that she should do and there's a wrong thing that she should do, which means she possessed that knowledge 
before she ate of the tree. And here's another thing to think about it. A loving God, like a loving father, would not punish his children for eating of a tree that gave them the knowledge to avoid eating from the tree in the first place. It's like not giving a rule to your children and then punishing them for breaking a rule that you hadn't given them first. What do we do as parents? We wait until the child breaks the rule that's not existent, and then we make the rule to protect the child, and then the second time that they break the rule, there's punishment. So for God to punish Adam and Eve for breaking a rule that they didn't have the cognitive ability to discern in the first place is completely against God's character. God would not do that. So Adam and Eve had the ability to discern right and wrong before they, eat, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because God could only punish them after they had that knowledge. So the eating the tree of the knowledge of good and evil didn't bestow that knowledge on them. They already had that knowledge. So we need to look at a couple more things here. Chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eye, and the tree was be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she, and she ate it. Now, there's an old Sesame Street song. There's a game that they used to play. Maybe you remember it. The song went with it. Uh, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just, do you remember? Doesn't belong. It's a whole song that went with it in my whole childhood now. You're crushing me. Uh, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell me which one is not like the other before I finish my song? You're welcome. Uh, America's Got Talent coming for me. Okay, so um, this is weird. This thing, like this, that there's something in this text that doesn't fit. We go, what's, what's different? There's something in here that's, that's different. Now, God created all the plants and animals, and um, he tells Adam that they were good for food, and they were a delight to the eyes, but what we don't find in the text is this word. In fact, this is the first time this word appears in the Bible. Eve desired the fruit of the tree. Or, or more precisely, she desired the wisdom that was promised from eating the fruit of the tree. And, and, and so here's what's going on in the, in the story, and it's really not about the fruit. Eve wanted to determine what was right and wrong for herself. She doesn't want to trust God's version of what is right and wrong. She doesn't want to trust that God knows the difference. She wants to determine what's right and wrong for herself. She wants to rule over God. She doesn't want to rule creation under God. I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. I want to have all the information. I want to decide what's right and wrong. I want to do what I want. And so, um, <laughs> hang on, because it gets better, I think. After they eat the fruit from this tree, they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the text says that Adam and Eve hide from God. Now, presumably, this has been a regular occurrence. God shows up in the garden, he walks around, Adam and Eve are there, they meet him, 
and then they go. In fact, um, th- th- when, you, when you look at the Hebrew, there's two different words for um, the, the phrase or the idea, where, like, where are you? God says to Adam and Eve, he gets to earth, he says, where, where are you? <laughs> where are you? There's two different words. One of them um, means like if you lose your keys and you would ask somebody in your family, like, where's my keys? I don't know where they are. They're gone. They're, they're missing. The other, uh, the other where, the other word for where is it, is a word that means, hey, when I come in ev- every day from work, I put my keys in the same place. And when I came in yesterday, I hung them up on the hook right there, and they're not where I left them. Where are they? And the word in the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 3, when God comes and says, where are you? The word that's used is the word that means you are not where you're supposed to be. Where are you? So God comes down to the garden, and Adam and Eve are not there. And he says, hey, we had a date. You're not here. Where are you? And then Adam responds in this really um, weird way. He says, I I heard the sound of you in the garden. You could just see a little kid who broke the vase while mom was out of the house. Uh, And so he says, "I, I heard you coming, God. I heard you coming. And so I ran away from the place that I was supposed to be. Because I was afraid, because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Now, Adam doesn't say that that he's afraid because he ate of of the tree, of the garden. He says he's afraid because he's naked. And if you read the text, you realize that being naked comes up a lot. And I would argue that maybe in the garden, this is great. And so husbands and wives should be naked with each other more. I think it's just biblical. Uh, You're welcome, guys. Sorry, ladies. Um, but anyway, I, I think I think would argue that uh, Bible later. Um, but nakedness plays a big role in the story of of Genesis, right? And it's odd. It like doesn't like who cares, Adam, that you're naked? Why would that be the reason that you're afraid? It doesn't make any sense. Now, um, my children have been afraid of me in in, in the past, right? Yes, thank you. My children have been afraid of me in the past. Usually it's because when a child is afraid of their parent, it's usually because they're afraid that their parent is going to react to a cer- in a certain way to whatever that child has done. So the child does something that they think the parent is going to be upset about, and they're afraid when mom or dad comes home, I'm going to be in, in trouble. <laughs> But what do we as loving parents say to our children when they do something and they're really afraid that we're going to be mad at them, but they know that they screwed up? What do we say? We would say, don't be afraid. I love you. I, I recognize that you know you blew it. I don't have to punish you. I can be your parent. I can just love you and help you pick up the pieces. This is God's relationship with Adam and Eve here. And so God comes down and, and, and he's not going to be angry at them. He's not, they don't understand that, but they're afraid for no reason. And so what does God say when he comes down? He doesn't say, dang you, Adam. Like, I knew you were going to blow it. I knew you were going to eat it. Why didn't you tell Eve? Like, he doesn't say any of that. He doesn't say any of that even when we know that from this moment on, all of human history has has shifted irrevocably away from the garden, away from this incredible unity that heaven and humanity 
um, have at the moment. God realizes that Adam and Eve have just screwed it all up. And, and what does he say? Chapter 3, verse 11. Who told you you were naked? Doesn't it seem, seem like an odd thing for God to say? Of all the things God could say, why did you eat it? Why did you listen to her? Adam, what did you tell Eve about not eating of the tree? Did you pass that information on? All of these things, I told you, you I knew you were going to, hey, Holy Spirit, I told you they were going to screw it up. Adam, who told you you were naked? It doesn't fit. It's strange. It doesn't make any sense to us. Because I'm like, who cares whether they were naked or not? There's no bearing on the story whatsoever. Marty Solomon explains it this way. What God may really be asking is this question. Adam, who are you listening to? Adam, you've been naked since the beginning. I created you. I formed you out of the dust of the earth, and I breathed the breath of life into your nostrils, and you became a living being, and you were naked from that point on, and I created Eve, and she was naked, and you have been naked all this, this time, ever since the beginning. In fact, you were naked, and I said, it's good. Being naked has never bothered you before. Who have you been listening to? Who told you to be ashamed of your nakedness? Because it wasn't me. God's like, you're not listening to me, Adam, because I told you this was good. So let me go back to our question. What separates us from the beasts of the field? What separates us from the animals, the animal kingdom? What is it that's different about us than them? We have the ability to say no to our desires. This is unique in creation. We have the ability to say no to our desires. We are not beasts. We do not have to give in to every urge and desire that we have. And we have lots of urges and desires, and most of those urges and desires are good. The snake is not a human. He is a beast. He has a desire to eat, a desire to mate, a desire to defecate in the same place that his family is going to sleep that night, and that's what he does. He's a beast. He gives in to every desire that he has. Again, these desires that an animal or a beast has, they're not bad. You're hungry, eat. Uh, if you want to uh, propagate your species, you, you mate. When it's that time and you have that urge, you do it, and it doesn't matter. A snake will never say, I don't need the third egg from that nest because I really need to watch my cholesterol. A snake is never going to say that. In fact, it is our ability to deny ourselves, to willingly experience delayed gratification that gives us the greatest degree of satisfaction and personal pride in our lives. Uh, um, to hit the gym every day. We go, we have satisfaction in that. It was difficult, I didn't want to do it, I was tired and whatever, but I, I did it, I did it. To stick to a diet, 
I really wanted this thing. I had a desire for sugar. I had a craving for that, whatever it was, that extra piece of pie, and I didn't do it. I I stopped that desire. I didn't give in. To complete a New Year's goal and carry it out through the year, to stick to our sobriety, these things we're able to deny ourselves, they give us a great deal of personal satisfaction and pride. It's doing the hard things that separate us from the beasts of the field. It's the ability that we have to say no to our very own desires. And the reason that there's sin and there's problems and this story exists is because desire got in the way. And Adam and Eve stopped acting like, stopped acting like image bearers of God and they started acting like beasts of the field. And so there's a shift in the story. Genesis chapter two, verse 23. Then the man said, he's talking about Eve. God has created woman. And Adam says, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This comes after Adam has just seen all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, and he's named every one of them. And he's realized nobody is like me. I don't have a connection with any of these other creatures until he sees this woman. It's now flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Adam understood that God took some of him and made woman. It was not good for man to be alone. And so God created a new creation from Adam. And when Adam wakes up and sees her, he calls her Isha woman in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for man is ish, and the Hebrew word for woman is isha. And you can tell just by looking. You don't have to have any kind of linguistic training. You can tell these words go together. Adam sees her, and he's like, yes. He's like high-fiving God, because they're naked, remember? And um, there's this really incredible moment, and he's like, yes, this is the part of me that's now missing. We go together. We fit, ish and isha. We're literally cut from the same cloth. I finally have somebody here in all of creation that I can relate to, that I can share my life with, that I can propagate the species with. This is a big deal. It's a big moment for them. But look what happens after humanity is expelled from um, the garden. Chapter 3, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve. I'm like, wait a minute. He already named her in chapter 2 when everything was good. He named her woman, Isha. And now he names her Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So Adam... Adam gives her this new name. It's not the name she had in chapter two. It's a new name that comes after the desire, after they begin to act like beasts. And this seems odd. I'm like, why does he name her twice? But there's something telling about this word. Adam calls her Eve because she will be the mother of all the living, or she, in other words, will be Adam's baby factory. In chapter two, she's given this name fitting her essence. It's who she is. 
Isha woman. She's the part of me that's, that's missing. It's about purpose. It's about being together and working together. It's this beautiful picture and this beautiful story of the two of them in the garden with God and we're together doing what we were created to do and it's, and it's beautiful. And then they get kicked out of the garden and in chapter three, after desire and shame and guilt are introduced, Adam gives her a new name and it's not about who she is, it's about what she can produce for him. Offspring for Adam to help him work the field of the ground that's now been cursed. Later in the biblical story, what do we find out? That that Israel, the nation of God, is used by Egypt, not because of who they are, but for what they can produce, bricks, for the furtherance of Egypt's kingdom. And even today, when you and I meet somebody, what's one of the very first questions we ask them? What do you do for a living? What do you produce in your life? What use are you to society? Why do we have trouble in marriage and relationships with the opposite sex? I think it's because we've grown accustomed to looking at each other like beasts. What can you do for me? What will you let me do to you? We're fine in relationships as long as the other person gives us what we want. As long as my wife, as long as my husband is doing what I want them to, as long as they're producing the kind of things and the kind of life that I enjoy or I want, everything is fine. But as soon as you stop producing, I'm going to start desiring something else. We start looking like beasts driven by our desires wherever they go. We have got to learn to love others for who they are, not what they can produce. It's the way that God loves us, not for what we can do for him. He doesn't need any of that, but simply because we are his creation. And so we've got to stop listening to the world. God says, Adam, who are you listening to? Who's giving you this information? Who's telling you that you're just a beast and you have to give in to every desire? And if it feels good, do it. And if you don't like that relationship, just jump into a new one. And if they don't do what you want them to, then you can just find somebody else who who will. Who's telling us all of this? Because it's not God. We've got to stop listening to the world and start trusting God's word. We are not beasts. We are image bearers of God Almighty. And we've got to act like it in our relationships and in the world. Who are you gonna trust? Who are you gonna listen to? The world or the word? Let's pray. God, thank you for not leaving us alone. Thank you for your word that that separates us from the beast, that, that, that says, yes, you may have these desires, but they do not have to rule over you. In fact, God, it's what you said to Cain just right before he acted like a beast and killed his brother. You said, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, to master you. These desires, they, they, they want to take control, but you, 
you must master them. And it's the same thing you say to us today. We may have all of these desires and some of them are good, but we know that if we don't temper our desire, then we just become another beast of the field. Help us, God, to be image bearers of you, to say no to the desires that would lead us away from you and say yes to the things that might even be hard if they lead us to look more like your son, Jesus. Help us, God, to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.